you very much for your lovely invitation. Can you hear me? I'm very faint of voice, yeah. so uh, give me a wave if I drift into silent mode. Um, it's really been a nice opportunity because I've been working in the last year or two, in fact the last four years, on a project on uh, prisons and health, particularly mental health in prisons from 1850 onwards. So it's been quite a while since I've had anything to do with Sarah Coleridge and indeed with the, the sort of larger project which Sarah was included in, uh, which was the book Dangerous Motherhood, uh, which was a study of uh, childbirth and, and mental illness, what was known in the Victorian period as corporal insanity. So it's been really nice actually to go back and uh, look at this material with fresh eyes and also to incorporate a little bit more research into the many letters that were produced by um, Sarah, her family, her acquaintances um, about her disorder. Now, I'm not going to talk for an hour and a half because you'll need a drink. We'll have time for questions as well. You will need a drink after Sarah. So. <laughs> um, okay, so to begin, in June 1832, Sarah Coleridge, daughter of the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, gave birth to her second child, Edith. Two months later, she slipped into a deep depression. In her diary, which was to evolve into a close record of her mental state, she noted down pains and bowel complaints and was attended by a local surgeon, Dr. Evans, who prescribed aromatic drafts, a careful diet and castor oil. In addition, Henry prescribed her 10 drops of laudanum and Henry was, in fact, her uncle, uh, Dr. Henry Southey. By September, Sarah felt herself increasingly debilitated, weak, and miserably nervous and fluttered. She noted in her diary that she was going on very sadly. Nervous derangement is my complaint. Stomach and bowels out of order. Great weakness, nervousness, shiverings, and glowings. Sarah had trouble sleeping and was taking opiates regularly to induce rest. After a brief stay in Brighton, where she improved a little, she relapsed and described herself as hysterical, low and in despair. Her journey had commenced into a depression that had not lived for many years and which would be compounded by her long existing attachment to opiates and further pregnancies. Which one was it? Just the, to the... Okay. So this is a portrait of Sarah Coleridge. Sarah had settled in Hampstead, close to her father in Highgate, following marriage to her barrister cousin, Henry Nelson Coleridge, in 1829. A prolific writer, translator, poet, and author of pedagogical texts, Sarah would spend much of her life in a state of genteel poverty, particularly in the early years when Henry, her husband, was, was trying to build up a practice and dependent on the goodwill of others. Sarah's mother, more or less abandoned by Samuel Taylor Coleridge as his drug addiction deepened, had lived with Sarah for many years in the Lake District with her uncle, the poet Robert Salvey. Though Sarah spent her time in the Lake District free to roam and enjoy walking and boating, alongside her intensive studies, she was regarded as delicate from an early age. And this is quite important. It was quite an expectation that things would go wrong for Sarah when she, became, when she married and became a mother. In January 1823, Sarah and her mother visited her father in Highgate. He was taken by her beauty and knowledge, referring to her as a good and lovely girl but he was concerned, too, about her frail health. Her uncle, Robert Southey, describing Sarah's talents as a translator and writer, suggested such accompaniments disqualified
beside her, not a little in my judgment, for those duties which she will have to perform when she changes from the single to the married state. Her fitness for domestic matters and motherhood were constantly questioned by her family, and Sarah's pregnancy shortly after marriage was met with great apprehension. And such scenes almost seem to set the scene for her breakdown after the birth of her second child, Edith, as Sarah struggled constantly with household responsibilities and her weak state of health. Sarah appears in 1832, according to her own account and the comments of her family, acquaintances and physicians, to have fallen prey to a form of corporal melancholia. Now, she never actually used those two terms together. She talked about herself as being hysterical and melancholic, and she talked about her corporal disorder. So I'm using a kind of shorthand and the term that would have been used uh, at the time to describe her condition, but she described it subtly in, in other ways. She referred to this disorder implicitly in a number of references to her nervousness associated with childbirth in her diary. And in October 1832, during her stay in Brighton, she described in a letter to her sister-in-law, Mary Pridham Coleridge, her hopes of improving without incurring further doctor's bills, while at the same time seeking to identify medical experts who might be able to assist her. Doctors, as she put it, very clever in corporal cases, and mine is decidedly such. In the same month, her mother wrote how our poor Sarah is reduced to a very sad state of stomach and nerves by overnursing, and her disease, which by the medical mind is called corporal, is of the most distressing kind. Falling sick during the cholera epidemic of 1832-33, the progress of which she also remarked upon in her diary, Sarah's depression was part of another, albeit less well-documented and less deadly epidemic, that of insanity of childbirth. The phenomenon of mothers showing signs of mental disturbance and erratic, even violent behaviour following delivery had been remarked upon by doctors and midwives before the 19th century. John Hassler, for example, apothecary to a Bethlehem hospital, when analysing female admissions between 1784 and 1794, had been impressed by the number of women whose insanity supervenes on parturition. Leading man midwife, Dr. Thomas Denman, described what he termed mania lactia in 1801, and mania lactia in, in Denman's, uh, according to Denman's definition, included insanity occurring during pregnancy, after delivery, and while breastfeeding. And he talked about it again in a more expanded uh, way in a treatise in 1810. There were cause for concern. Denman did not, however, regard mania lactia as an anticipated sequel to childbirth. So this, there are isolated references to these kinds of disorders that seem very much as something that is unanticipated, that, it, that impacts on individual women, but it's not something that's really expected as an after effect of childbirth. This changes, I would argue, uh, in the early 19th century. And in 1820, Dr. Robert Gooch, a London-based obstetrician with a flourishing practice and prestigious appointments at several London hospitals, became the first physician to write specifically on corporal insanity. In his short but influential treatise, Observations on Corporal Insanity, based on a lecture that he delivered to the Royal College of Physicians a year previously. This, I think, we can see as a real turning point. Gooch presented the disorder as a new discovery, new territory in the fields of midwifery and the diseases of women, at a time when the two were starting to be forged together in obstetric literature, with childbirth being ever more risky. So this, this sort of category and a large number of textbooks 
uh, describing the diseases of women start to emerge from the 1820s, 1830s onwards, um, outlining in more and more detail um, the kind of disorders, complications that could arise during or after childbirth. And peripheral insanity, interestingly enough, becomes tacked on usually as the final chapter. You get the insanity bit at the end after all the physical uh, complications and uh, disabilities that could result from childbirth. Gucci's publication of, of 1820 with its clear writing style and detailed and vivid case histories commanded immediate attention. He reported how he dealt patiently and sympathetically with the women he treated, also emphasizing the particular dangers of the melancholic form of peripheral insanity in comparison to mania. And Though both were seen as uh, terrible disorders, mania was much more violent, it could be more short-lived, it was more shocking in many ways. But melancholia had this sort of creeping, um, slow uh, onset, often undetected, and was seen, once it was established, as much more difficult uh, to treat. Thereafter, peripheral insanity evolved into a discrete diagnostic label. label describing a form of mental breakdown that was seen as likely to affect large numbers of women passing through the process of childbirth. And I think it's that that changes. It becomes something that is really, really anticipated at this point. In a further, more elaborate account of peripheral insanity written by Gooch in 1829, he explained how, during that long process, or rather succession of processes, in which the sexual organs of the human female are employed in forming, lodging, expelling, and lastly feeding the offspring, there is no time in which the mind may not become dis disordered. But there are two periods at which this is chiefly liable to occur. The one soon after delivery, when the body is sustaining the effects of labor, the other several months afterwards, when the body is sustaining the effects of nursing. Nervous irritation, Gooch also explained, is very common after delivery, more especially among fashionable ladies. And this may exist in any degree between mere peevishness and downright madness. By the 1830s, the term had been widely adopted by both obstetric physicians and practitioners of psychological medicine, and absorbed into the expanding number of publications produced by these relatively new specialisms. And I think that emergence of the specialisms, both making claims about expertise to treat this disorder, is also quite important. It became wide, part of two wider processes. The first I just mentioned, that of framing childbirth increasingly in terms of pathology, disease, and danger. And it also has connections, which I haven't really talked about here, but I'm happy to talk about in questions, in a way with obstetric practitioners trying to ease midwives out of practice. There's a lot of mm. claims being made here about expertise, not only to deliver the women successfully, but to also treat all these alarming after effects of childbirth, including peripheral insanity. The second process it seems to be very much part of relates more specifically to um, mental disorder, where emphasis began to be placed increasingly on the role of the reproductive cycle in causing high rates of mental illness among women. And that is both in private practice but also increasingly in asylum practice. And peripheral insanity came to account for as many as 10 to 20% of female admissions in many asylums. It also, as I mentioned, became something of a contested disorder as both obstetric practitioners and medical psychologists claimed expertise in recognizing and treating the condition. And it's also a huge debate about where it should be treated, particularly as uh, increasing numbers of asylums were established in the early 19th century. Obstetric practitioners were treated at home or in private lodgings, and uh, specialists in mental disorders saying, no, the women need to be removed to uh, an asylum. 
Now, Sarah might have been treated by Robert Gooch, the expert on corporal insanity, had he not died at an early age in 1830, just two years before Sarah became ill. And the reason I say that is he was well known to the Coleridge and Salve family. I'll say a little bit more about that later in the paper. As it was, Sarah made her way through her diagnosis of illness, attended by a wide variety of medical attendants. While Gooch would have no doubt recommended that Sarah be removed from the disturbing influences that had triggered the disorder, aside from brief excursions away for her health, Sarah remained at home, confronted, even if not fully participating, in the activities of the household and playing a key role in her children's care and education. Now Sarah's descriptions of her condition would evolve into a gruelling narrative of depression and confusion as the illness blurred with the effects of the narcotic drugs with which it was treated and to which Sarah clung. Despite this, she negotiated her way through her illness in a way that often gave her freedom to work on her literary projects. We can also question how much her descriptions, understanding and management of the disorder were shaped by her knowledge, the medical texts she read, and by her circle of acquaintances. And I'll be developing these themes too later in the paper. The main account of her suffering is contained in, in a diary dating from 1830 to 1838. And in letters written by Sarah to her children's nurse, her family and friends, as well as correspondence produced by other family members. And this is both in printed form, many of the letters have been published, uh, but also in a huge manuscript uh, collection, which is based at the Harry Ransom uh, Humanities Research Centre in Austin, Texas. But fortunately, at the Modern Records Centre at Warwick, Thanks to the intervention of my colleague or ex-colleague Karen Stephen many years ago, we have microfilm copies which we've worked with and uh, transcribed. So that is of the diary and particularly the manuscript letters. The diary in particular is a wonderful source, albeit a miserable read. What started out as a baby diary after the birth of Sarah's first child, Herbert, in 1930, <coughs> intended to record her children's progress and physical development, as well as an astonishing array of colds, feeblets, skin and bowel disorders, after 1832 became a narration of Sarah's mental and physical condition, although she still continued to use the diary to talk about her children's training, uh, her, their care, and also their numerous disorders that they were subjected to. As mentioned above, Sarah's first pregnancy shortly after marriage had been greeted with consternation by family and friends alike, who believed her too frail to withstand the rigours of childbirth. And what we don't know is how much these concerns were heightened by the kind of medical literature that was being produced at this time, pointing this out time and time again, how risky and dangerous childbirth was. Particularly as much of this literature was passing into the kind of lay, periodicals that the Coleridge and Salve Circle would be reading. And, and in fact, things like the Quarterly Review had a great deal of material on these issues. Sarah's mother came to Hampstead for her confinement and helped take care of Herbert after the birth. And thereafter, Sarah's mother actually remained in the household. Even poor father at Highgate, with whom Sarah had little contact, has been very nervous about her, she wrote in her diary. Despite her frailty, Sarah would go through seven more pregnancies during the next 10 years, with Edith born two years later, and Edith was the real trigger for the uh, development of her mental uh, disorder. Three bed pregnancies ended in miscarriage, and three other children, twins Florence and Berkeley, and were born in January 1834, and Bertha Fanny, who was born in July 1840, died within days of birth. 
Each pregnancy caused Sarah great anguish and physical and mental collapse, as did, of course, the loss of, of uh, three of her children shortly after delivery. The birth of Edith in 1830, after the birth of Edith in 1832, Sarah noted in her diary nervous feelings, no tears though low enough, and a yawny hollow feeling, and recorded how she lapsed in and out of nervous terror and wretched spirits. The deepening of Sarah's mental anxiety and her feelings of nervous derangement in 1832 persuaded her it was time to wean Edith even though she was just two months old. So this is actually very, very early. And the diary takes on a particularly disturbing tone in the autumn of 1832, recording the struggle to get Edith to suck from a bottle, Sarah's sore breast, Edith's bowel upsets and sickliness, rolled in with Herbert, uh, teething her youngest child, all while Sarah was desperately depressed. Following this decline in her health, Sarah's mother explained that her husband saw that it was quite necessary that immediate steps should be taken for her removal from home and by advice to the sea. The malady increased rapidly, no sleep, no appetite, and all things wrong in the interior. And in fact, Sarah's mother writes a lot in this kind of uh, tone about Sarah's uh, decline. Even a year after Edith's birth, Sarah, according to her mother, remained in poor health, unable to sit up for more than 15 minutes at a time. By April 1833, however, Sarah explained that her spirits had been much relieved, but after a bad night, she was more hysterical again today. My whole frame is exceedingly weak. Throughout June 1833, Sarah described herself as fatigued, exhausted, and heavy. She briefly improved, became less nervous and without tears, but on 20th of June was low, upset and hysterical again. In early autumn she recorded more frequent episodes of weakness and hysteria and was discouraged and fearful about what she referred to as the stoppage. Sarah was once again pregnant. And in November 1833 she wrote, Oh woe is me, oh misery, the sensations of utter helplessness and heart-sinking wretchedness, with slight intervals of mitigation, have been more overpowering than ever since I wrote last. And then she wept again because she had no more to say of that perpetual weight which on her spirits lay. During this, her third pregnancy, Sarah feared that she would not survive the birth of her child, and her poem, Verses Written on Sickness, told of her death. She wrote, My babe unborn, I dream of thee, for shaping all thy looks and wiles. Would heaven's light make close on me, ere I can watch thy dawning smiles. And then in January 1834, Sarah, in fact, survived the birth, but gave birth to twins who gave up their little feeble lives, as she wrote in her diary a few days later. I said you need this, a drink at the end of this. But I'm only taking a small extract from small extracts from the diary. There's much more of this very, very sad and, and, and disturbing account of her illness. Sarah's accounts of her illness give us close insight into her understanding of mental illness, as well as her interactions with the many physicians who were called in to treat her both local men and doctors consulting on family visits or her health breaks. For the most part, interestingly enough, given their London base and the fact they had some resources, she appears not to have been treated by doctors with particular expertise in midwifery or nervous complaints. Mr. Haynes and his partner, Mr. Evans, who both practiced near her home in Hampstead, attended her. And Sarah also saw Mr. Gilman, her father's doctor, um, and his landlord, who lived for many years with Dr. Gilman and his wife. Um, and in a sense, Dr. Gilman was also his drug supplier, his drug dealer. Mm -hmm. um, Gilman also very regularly attended her. He attended her first confinement when she was delivered with Herbert. And she also occasionally consulted her uncle, Dr. Henry Salvey. 
While in Brighton in the autumn of 1832, Sarah wrote of her optimism in finding herself in safe hands with a local doctor, Mr. Lawrence, who appears to be very clever and very attentive and perfectly understands my case. Having attended, as he says, similar persons in the same state, his wife among them. I think this letter is, is quite interesting. There's a whole series of letters written to uh, her children's nurse, Aunt Parrot, and she's writing to Aunt Parrot almost on a, a daily basis. Um, and this is, I mean, I think it really illustrates several features that reoccur in these letters um, very, very well. Uh, reference to the, the children, darling, since she has a them happy. Um, she talked about the journey to Brighton. Um, her mother also wrote about it in various correspondence that, um, that she was so ill en route, they despaired of getting her there, so they kept getting out of the coach and would get back in and was very, very disturbed. Um, when she arrived there, she saw uh, Mr. Lawrence, who she was quite happy with. And you get this sort of curious sense that she likes him because kind of agrees with her own diagnosis of her condition as well. Um, he understands my case, having um, attended similar persons in the same state, describes it to ability, nervousness, to exhaustion of the systems and suffering. He was also optimistic. He talked to setting several lights sooner or later. He says the cure may be sudden or it may be tedious, but he never knew a case like mine which didn't turn out well in the end. And then again, she refers back to the children. Uh, I know that you will take all possible care of my beloved children. Um, Mr. Lawrence, the medical man, says I am better far from them and that new scenes, changes of air, etc., are quite needful for me. Does Edith cry at one o'clock with a bottle still? How are Herbert's teeth going on? Your master and Mrs. Coleridge are quite well, but have had much anxiety. So and there are, there's a lot of interesting things going on, I think, in this sort of correspondence. One is this sort of um, almost alliance that starts to be built between Sarah and some of her medical practitioners. And she is very keen in the way there's a clear description of her disorder, which ties it in with her childbirth and, and also her suckling of children, her breastfeeding. Um, in some occasions, you feel this is the advice she really wants to hear, that she's to be separate from the children and free from responsibility. But the other hand, the, the bond between her and her children is incredibly strong. And she's also very, very keen to be fully active, fully engaged in, in their care, their day-to-day -day training and education as they get a little bit older. So there's this interesting mix between despair about her condition interest in her, in her children, but in the end, quite a few uh, letters being produced and sent back home. So this, this interaction with Mr. Lawrence was quite a positive one. Some of her other interactions with medical men went much less well. Back home in Hampstead, for example, in 1833, Sarah had a brief and distressing interaction with the establishment figure and wealthiest physician in London, Sir Henry Holford, who was president of the Royal College of Physicians. Now, regarded by many of his colleagues as more a courtier than a doctor, with his highly developed professional bedside manner, Holford seems to have failed Sarah badly, or in any case, she didn't like him, she didn't take to him. Though a commissioner in lunacy, he appeared to know a little about depression following childbirth, and openly derided midwifery as a low branch of practice. He promised to cure Sarah, but merely prescribed more drugs. His bedside manner did not, in Sarah's view, match expectations, and in May 1833, Sarah declared herself alarmed and dejected by his manner. He considers mine an obstinate case. Now, Sarah seems in terms of the current advice that would have been given on her treatment, in terms of therapeutics, to have fared quite badly. 
Experts on parental insanity advocated removal of the mother quickly from the family home and separation as the first step in treatment. This, uh, this happened occasionally, for example, when she, she visited Brighton, but for the most part, Sarah remained largely at home with her family. From time to time, she opted out of family duties, assuming <coughs> her household responsibilities for her mother, and leaving her children with their nurse and parents. <coughs> but she never freed herself from home and family for substantial periods, because, as I mentioned earlier, she felt so committed to her own methods of training and raising her children. And her correspondence continues to show, even though in the midst of her depression, her nervous exhaustion and weakness, how much she involved herself with the children's welfare, what they ate, wore, their activities, and their ailments, even on these periods away from the family home. Sarah demonstrated her own medical knowledge and understanding of her condition in her interactions with her physicians, and did not fear to express her own opinions. She classed some of her attendants as kind, while others disappointed her either because they failed to make her feel better, or in some cases because they tried to wean her from her opiates. The sense of a shared diagnosis reached by mutual agreement between Sarah and her doctors, as, as in this extract, occurs on a number of occasions in her diary and correspondence. In some instances, she put great trust in her doctors, particularly when they agreed with her own diagnosis. In terms of her treatment with opiates, Sarah's use of narcotics was well established long before marriage and motherhood. In 1824, Sarah was stricken with anxiety and depression and coped by using opium as an aid to sleep. She referred to her first use of laudanum in a letter of October 1825. By the 1830s, many medical authorities on mental disorders will condemn resort to narcotics, opiates, as part of their treatment. Though interestingly, a number of physicians, including Robert Gooch and the eminent alienist, James Carl's Pritchett, still supported their use to ensure rest and sleep. But certainly in cases of insanity, the general view by the 1830s when Sarah became ill was that opiates should be avoided as, as much as possible and only used as a last resort. But James Carl's Pritchett, and I'll demonstrate um, in, a, in a short while that she seems to have had some knowledge of his work and writings, supported their use to ensure rest and sleep. And he actually recommended quite large doses, 10 grains of Dover's powder at night, a grain and a half of solid opium, these are huge doses, or 30 drops of tincture of laudanum. And these, regrettably, are similar amounts to those taken by Sarah on many occasions. Now, Sarah made occasional, rather feeble attempts to give up morphine and laudanum, but on, on, for the most part, continued to consume them on a regular basis. As a further debilitating consequence, she became very constipated. And if you have morphine, you will know this is one of the side effects. And her struggle to deal with this became a daily preoccupation. She was compelled to make extensive use of laxatives, recording her motions meticulously in her diary with ends. And it is also likely that her miscarriage and the deaths of her newborn children were related to her high intake of opiates. In January 1833, with her kind friend, Mr. Gilman, she reported in her diary that it was agreed that her state, particularly the suspension of her monthlies, was very common after confinements connected with the nervous derangement. Gilman constantly, as he did with her father, supplied Sarah with opiates. And she records in her diary even sending for them in great urgency at night. Later the same month, and this I think is a quite an interesting interaction with another medical man, Sarah was seen by Dr. Nevison, who advised, he says, I shall surely recover, but not very soon. He advises me to reduce the morphine as soon as I can, underlined in diary, and 
to go on quietly, making no painful exertions, but attending to my general health and not relying on medicine. He prescribed a dose of mild purgatives and nothing else. He thinks the weakness I feel still more of today of no great consequence. Now clearly Sarah didn't take to Nevinson or his advice. It was not followed and Dr. Nevinson was never referred to again and Sarah continued to take her laudanum. As well as giving us details of Sarah's illness and suffering, the diary in her correspondence and her written work shows that she was well informed about children's complaints and their treatment, the diseases of women, and the workings of her own body, nervousness, and moral insanity, which I'll talk about in a minute. She was precise in monitoring her menstrual periods, knowing when to expect her show, calculated to the day or even the hour, and her absence made her quick to fear that she could once again be pregnant. She constantly in a diary blamed her reproductive organs as contributing factors in her nervous derangement, and she also talked about things like suspicious discharges, which she labelled whites or arbofluris, which confirmed for her irritation of the uterus either as a cause or accompaniment of general nervous weakness. And she referred to herself on numerous occasions as hysterical. In 1834, Sarah wrote an essay on nervousness during a period of relatively good health, which was largely an effort to analyse her condition and to confront and understand the psychological condition that she saw as having both physical and psychological origins. Nervousness revealed a familiarity with recent medical literature and appears to have been influenced by the publications of several authorities on the diseases of women, including Robert Gooch and Marshall Hall, who also wrote extensively on women's disorders, childbirth, diseases of women, as well as James Carl Pritchett, a preeminent uh, psychiatrist of the period. Sarah used it in her essay on nervousness, phases and descriptions that indicated confidence in explaining female disorders, showed familiarity with current medical disputes, and was able to link her condition to what she read. And we can even take this analysis further on a, a, a recent uh, study of Sarah Coleridge's life and work uh, by Jeffrey Barber's also uh, developed an analysis of, of nervousness which he argues explored the mind-body relationship, but also the dialogue between invalid and good genius, two terms that she uses throughout the lesson on nervousness, with Sarah playing the roles of both ailing addict and wise counsellor. Um, so for example, concerning laudanum, um, Invalid explains that every medical man speaks ill of, prohibits it, and after trying in vain to give me sleep without it, ends with prescribing it himself. So a quick lapse into using laudanum. Whereas good genius advocates that it must be weighed carefully and used cautiously and rationally, we must never think of taking it to procure positive comfort, but only to ward off obstinate sleeplessness and that not so much on account of the immediate suffering as the after injurious effects of irritation and fatigue. So good genius talking about the use of laudanum very much as a last resort. Sarah was also well informed about moral insanity, a term that starts to be used increasingly around the 1830s. And nervousness was largely an effort to differentiate between madness as a disease of reason and hysteria as a disease of emotions. In November 1832, not long after she became ill, she explained to her husband, and she wrote this up in her diary, that a nervous derangement was a disease in the mental powers, not madness, yet in some respects akin to it. Dr. James Carlos Pritchett had described moral insanity in 1833, just one year before Sarah wrote her essay on nervousness, defining it as a morbid 
perversion of the feelings, affections, and habits without any hallucination or erroneous convictions impressed upon the understanding. It coexists with an apparently unimpaired state of the intellectual faculties. Now, this was a description that would have suited Sarah as it did not compromise intellect or understanding. And in a way, it may have provided a framework for her self-management of the illness as she continued throughout her illness to read and write to be quite productive and offer an escape route from maternal duties with its therapeutic benefits and distractions. And I think there are many, many ways that you can interpret this sort of parallel lives that Sarah seems to be living. On the one sense, her intense illness, nervousness, depression, despair. On the other, her intellectual uh, productivity. And when I first read her diary, you know, I thought she's really exercising her agency in a way to create space to do her work. Um, you know, she's uh, not manipulating quite, but she's. Um, this is a way for Sarah to free herself from the duties of the household and so on. Rereading re it and reading more of the letters, you start to wonder how much she's using her intellectual activities as sort of relief and distraction from her illness. So I think it's incredibly complicated, it's incredibly difficult sometimes to work out what's, what's actually going on. But the fact she managed to, to live these parallel lives is very, very striking. And it's also worth mentioning that Sarah had, apart from what she read, had intense experiences of mental illness within her family and connections. Um, she lived for many years with Robert Salvi in the late history when she was young, and Salvi's wife, Edith, became mentally ill, uh, particularly in 1834. She had a major collapse. Dorothy Wordsworth, a close family friend, also lapsed into mental derangement and confusion around at the same time. So there's a lot of practical knowledge as well of mental disorders, as well as what she uh, read. Intriguingly, the foremost authority on inventor even of corporal insanity, Robert Gooch, was also intimate with the family. Gooch had treated Samuel Taylor Coleridge in 1812 when his health had taken a turn for the worst. And in fact, one of the, Gooch, one of the things Gooch tried to do, although he had quite a lot of faith in the use of opiates in cases of mental, uh, mental illness, he tried to reduce Samuel Taylor Coleridge's opiate intake. And he failed miserably to do this. So he attended uh, her father quite regularly for a short period. Gooch, interestingly enough, also had very close links with the Salvi family. He studied medicine in Edinburgh with Henry Salvi, who remained a close colleague. And after Gooch's early death in 1830, Salvi wrote a moving epitaph in the lives of British physicians about Gooch's life and work. Gooch had befriended Robert Salvi, who looked after Sarah during her youth, <coughs> following a visit to the Lake District in uh, 1811. And Salvi recruited Gooch as a contributor to the quarterly review, which he edited. Gooch's article, an account of some of the most important diseases peculiar to women, was published in the quarterly review in 1829. So we know that Gooch was intimate and part of the Salvian Coleridge circle and his work known to them. What we don't know is if Sarah had any direct connection with Gooch. It's one of those really tantalizing things about this work is to, it seems as though she's read his work, particularly from her essay on nervousness. And she certainly read the quarterly review very regularly, referred to it in, in her diary. She may have met Gooch, we just don't know. It would be really nice to know. It's possible to read more and more letters, you might find that interesting. Had tea with Mr. Gooch in Hansberg. Well, I haven't found it yet. It would be nice to know and make that connection. Sarah's well-documented story is unusual in that the documentation is almost solely from the patient's view and the perspective of her family and circle. So far as we know, it's undocumented in any medical account or set of case notes. 
And aside from her disastrous interaction with Henry Holford, for the most part, Sarah's medical attendants would not have considered themselves expert enough to publish widely in medical journals or would have been likely to have kept extensive case records. I mean, these were oftentimes local doctors or local surgeons um, who lived in Hampstead and Highgate um, who would not claim any special knowledge in the most, for the most part of nervous disorders or uh, of midwifery even. They were dealing with a woman who appears to have a good knowledge of her illness and to be able to interpret it and strong views on its causality. And this raises the question of how far it's possible for Sarah to have learned her illness or indeed if her condition was actually mediated in some way by what she read in medical texts. There is a strong sense that Sarah negotiated her illness on her terms but in a much more complex way than the unconscious form of feminist protest suggested by Elaine Showalter. As Carol Smith, Rosenberg and Nancy Ferrier have described with regard to their exploration of cases of hysteria and corporal insanity in 19th century America, the diagnosis of Sarah's condition and approaches to her treatment appear to have been driven by a large extent, to a large extent by her agency even when she was feeling extremely ill, evolving, as I've already referred to, into some instances, into a form of mediated agreement between Sarah and her medical attendants. She largely selected her medical advisors and was prepared to edit their advice and also to get rid of them if she didn't agree with their advice. Sarah also did take the opportunity to take time away from the household her family largely sympathised with Sarah's change of circumstances upon marriage. Her days spent with her uncle Robert Salvi had been occupied with reading and writing, walking and mountaineering. And now, her mother and others commented, she was the mistress of a household and mother of two young children, with little time to study, transported from a two-bustling family to one of utter loneliness. Her husband was also oftentimes away, sometimes in London, working in, in his chambers. So she was offered a home with the children, with the children's nurse and, and her mother. Days haunted by depression coexisted with her active intellectual life. In February 1833, Sarah noted, she was in a miserable state of irritation I read all day. By the summer, she was helping Henry with his chancery papers and reading biographies of Shakespeare, Ben Johnson, and Dryden. During one of her worst periods of nervous hysteria in October 1836, Sarah set off with her children, a nurse and parrot, for London after a stay with relatives in Devon. At the end of the first day on reaching Ilchester, Sarah declared herself unfit to proceed. She sent the children back to Devon and remained in lodgings in Ilchester for a month. Her letters make it clear she immersed herself in copious reading and writing with a clear head, as she wrote, and a vigorous hand. However, when her husband tried to persuade her to return to London, she refused. He pleaded, even commanded Sarah to return, but she was determined to stay where she was. She wrote in two separate letters in October, say that I may rest here till my shattered nerves have recovered some degree of tone and I shall be happy. But assuredly that will not be in 10 days, nor perhaps in 10 weeks. For the rest of my life, I will keep my expenses within the closest bounds possible. It's so interesting at this point of acute emergency and declining mental state. She talks about, she almost does this negotiation about family finances. Again, a few days later. Your feelings will be sad when you hear that I cannot proceed with my journey. God in heaven, to whom I frequently pray, knows that I cannot. I was much worse after arriving yesterday. In hysterics, frequently have no sleep last night. And in attempting to set out today, I found I could not do it. I mean that I was in such a state, so weak, tom furred, stomach flatulent and sick, 
so that I cannot keep myself up with food. I'm altogether so ill that if I put further force upon my nerves, I know not what will happen. If I am now quiet, I shall gradually recover, but if I proceed, I never shall. Sorry, I meant to put that long quote on. Her almost daily letters home reported on the advice given by physicians, details of her diet, and of her extensive reading. The confinement in Ulchester was certainly very productive. She flatly refused to return home without her husband Henry. And finally, in November, Henry travelled to Ilchester to collect Sarah and bring her home to Hampstead. Now Sarah was was right in many ways to think that she might recover from this disorder. This was a common scenario, recovery was a common scenario for other women suffering from peripheral insanity. However, she never apparently negotiated enough time to make a full recovery and her bond with her household and children remained close. Her treatment piecemeal and messy. Sarah's belief that her mental state was prompted by the strains of motherhood and the household was also shared by many physicians treating and writing on peripheral insanity. And at a time when motherhood was so esteemed and regarded as women's most important function and duty, many doctors pointed out, in talking about peripheral insanity, how difficult this transition was for many women. This was not just because of the challenges to the female body imposed by pregnancy, birth and breastfeeding, but also because some women found marriage disappointing and motherhood difficult, exhausting and unrewarding. Now Sarah certainly didn't find it unrewarding, I think, but she did find it very difficult at times. Examining corporal insanity through Sarah's case cast light on the complexities of motherhood and family life as much as her illness, albeit in an extraordinary family setting. With the household ticking over with the help of her mother and servants, Sarah also referred to those suffering and taking on extra responsibility on her behalf, her husband, poor Henry, and her poor Charlotte's, her children. She emerged from her depression only in 1841, when her husband, Henry, became desperately ill and died a couple of years afterwards, when she was finally free from the burdens and risk of childbearing. Sarah's case leaves historians with an unusually rich set of sources, but equally given the challenges of interpreting them, many questions. And I'm going to mind on some questions, which is a bit of a cop-out, but here we go. How far did Sarah's own knowledge shape her understanding of her illness? Or did her illness prompt her efforts to acquire that knowledge? How can we interpret Sarah's interactions with her doctors and whose opinions in the end and whose opinions in the end shape her diagnosis and treatment? And how can we understand her ability to continue to pursue her intellectual pursuits? even in the face of such intense suffering. Thank you very much.